This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with psychiatrist Robert Coles, author of The Spiritual Life of Children. I spoke with him in the year 2000 in his home outside Boston, Massachusetts. This interview is included in our program, The Inner Lives of Children, which was originally broadcast in December 2008. Download the MP3 of that produced show at speakingoffaith.org. You know, the place I'd like to start, and we don't have to spend a lot of time here, but uh, you know, something that I've been curious about that I, I haven't actually found, sometimes it's hinted at in, um, in your books, is uh, something about your own, the, the religious background that you brought um, to your work with children. Uh, well, my religious background is a story in itself. Um, my mother comes from the Midwest, or came from the Midwest. She died a few years ago, but she came from Sioux City, Iowa. She was uh, from a farm family that became a business family in, in Iowa, and they were Episcopalian and very religious people, especially she. My father, on the other hand, uh, was born in England and came from a rather unusual background, I, I think it's fair to say. Uh, he was English, but he was also uh, half Catholic, half Jewish. Uh, his father's family were Jews in Spain who fled Spain during the Inquisition and came first to Holland and then England. And his mother's family were Catholics. They were French Catholics. So if that isn't a confusing background, I don't know what is, but it's a varied background. Especially for a European. uh, Yeah, and it brings in uh, aspects of uh, Catholicism, Protestantism, and Judaism. The Judaism had been unfortunately watered down by the assimilationist inclination of the uh, Western Jews in Spain and Holland and England. But nevertheless, that has always uh, been part of my thinking life. Uh, I uh, grew up during the 30s and 40s when Hitler threatened the whole world And when actually for the first time my father's family in England realized that if Hitler crossed the English Channel, they would suddenly be identified as Jews, whereas they had identified themselves, I think, as as secular English people. This was quite a jolt to them and to my father, and uh, I still remember this. We were taken to church by uh, our mother, my brother and me, my father would drive us to church. He'd sit and read the newspaper. He wouldn't go into the church. He'd read the Sunday Times, and then we'd come out, and he'd ask my brother and me what we learned. Interesting verb. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother, my mother. I later realized, as people like me in psychiatry and psychoanalysis, when we go through our own psychoanalytic training, I later learned that it was important for my mother and father to obviously to have one another as a couple, uh, but also I think my father brought to my mother the kind of deep thinking, scientific thinking, by the way, that he was capable of. He was an engineer and a scientist. He'd gone to MIT, and uh, he, was a, he was a brilliant scientist and a wide reading, had a wide-ranging mind, a deeply 
reading uh, intellect, and uh, she loved that. She loved him. She loved his way of thinking of things. And he, in turn, loved her spirituality, okay. her interest in uh, religion, her love, by the way, not only for the Episcopal Church, but for churches and, I might add, synagogues. My mother was more interested in Judaism another irony than my father was. Mm. She was the one who uh, who exalted important Jewish people like, well, as a matter of fact, Freud and Einstein mm. and the great writers of the world whom she felt, some of whom were Jewish. She, she, I remember my mother uh, reading the poetry of Paul Ceylon, who was a Jewish poet who escaped the Nazis. He was at Auschwitz. And uh, even as she read about, she read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's work and adored Bonhoeffer for what he did, namely stood up to Hitler as a, a Lutheran mm-hmm. minister. But she, she, she delved into, uh, into Elie Wiesel's writing, for instance, uh, into, uh, into uh, the Karl Barth, yes, but also uh, Buber, mm-hmm. very interested in Buber mm-hmm. and his writing, that whole existentialist tradition, Jewish and Christian alike. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think my father got to that through her, even as she got to science, including social science and psychoanalytic science, so to speak, through uh, she got to that through him. So he was sort of vicariously spiritual. <laughs> well, I guess vicariously. I knew as a boy when we went to church that there was something special about religion, yes, through my mother. But I knew that there were splits and divisions. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, I remember asking my mother, I must have been eight, seven or eight years old, why doesn't daddy come into church? She said, well, your father doesn't believe in what he would hear here. So when she said that, that was an invitation to me to be skeptical. Because, okay. you know, I was his son, and I very much looked up to him. So I want to know why doesn't Daddy believe this? And that got the whole thing going, because he explained to me that he, what he believed in is un- understanding, predictability through science, uh, and all its achievements. Uh, so I remember, I distinctly remember in the sixth grade, that would make me 10 years old, uh, understanding uh, the position of the agnostic skeptic as well as the mm-hmm. faithful believer. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't put it perhaps the way I just did with that language, but I, f- I had it in my bones, and I had it in family experience. And very important, what I had is my mother and father, memories of my parents talking to one another out loud so that my brother and I could hear and understand their different points of view. Mm-hmm. And I remember my mother telling me, oh, do I remember this? I remember my mother telling me that when I heard people saying things that were anti-Semitic or slurring against Jewish people or toward any people of any background, ethnic, racial, uh, cultural, geographic or whatever, I remember her saying, hate is a sin. And Jesus died trying to save us from hate. And then, of course, she reminded us that Jesus was a Jew. 
And in fact, she had a way of putting it that maybe not everyone would like, either Christian or Jewish. But she said, you know, Jesus in his own way was a reformed Jew. And Your he, mother sounds remarkable, really. <laughs> and uh, my father would say, I'm not sure that the Reformed Jews <laughs> would like to hear what you're saying. So she said, but she didn't mean it uh, in any denominational way or either to be approving or critical. She was pointing out that he, in fact, what she said then, even now, I can remember, she said he had the courage to believe and to stand up for his beliefs, and even to die for his beliefs. Mm-hmm. And she that was a contrast to the conventional church-going yeah. that uh, she knew and that she knew that we were experiencing. So he was posed to us in a very personal and intimate mm-hmm. way, and I still remember that. And whenever I see a picture of Jesus... Uh, I think of the Jewish people and of their enormous gifts to the world in human knowledge and understanding, but in fact, their gifts to the world of Christianity through Mm -hmm. one of their rabbis, which is what Jesus was. He was a rabbi. He was a teacher, a wandering teacher who got into some trouble with people, both in the religious establishment, but also, of course, in the political establishment in Rome. And that rebellious side of Jesus, I think my mother held on to with great passion. And I still feel that that is something that that ought to be regarded. And I think it's tragic in a way that all too many of us allow ourselves to become uh, so conventionally religious Mm -hmm. that we lose that... uh, shall I say, skeptical, rebellious, questioning side to religion, right. uh, which I think is what I'm trying to say here as I speak with you, as I go back to my parents yeah. and to my childhood and try to recapture some of that that spirit that I knew as a boy growing up in a somewhat relatively, I guess you'd say, uh, unusual home background. It, it, it's interesting to me that... Um that those words you used, questioning uh, spirit um, and not a conventional religious sense, are, are also qualities that you found in, in children. And even in children who came from uh, homes in which the tradition was much more, uh, much more set, I mean, where they were getting one view of, of the world. Well, that's a very good point you've just brought up. And then perhaps what you're saying is, if I may say so, I hope with as much humility as I can manage under the circumstances of talking about oneself, which is hard to manage, humility, and also to speak uh, out of one's personhood and soul and background. But I would say this. I think children are by nature questioning. I mean, I, I know it. I know it as a pediatrician, a child psychiatrist. I know it as a parent. I think we all know that. Children are questioning. Yes, they can be intimidated and even beaten a lot sometimes into submission so that they stop questioning. But there is a natural side to childhood that has to do with interest in the world, learning about it, and questioning and probing that world. And I think, to tell you what I think you, what you're saying is, what you've picked up is 
the, it's that side of childhood that I'm interested in and respond to. And what I am less interested, perhaps, in is the conforming obedience side mm-hmm. of childhood. Uh, you know, unfortunately, that has to take place at times because we want our children to live in a world of rules and laws. But there is no doubt that a lot of the religious side of childhood has to do, is a merger of the natural curiosity and interest the children have in the world with the natural interest and curiosity that religion has about the world because that's what religion is. It's right. it's our mm. effort in this planet as creatures who have a mind and use language to to ask questions and answer them through through speculation, through storytelling, through that yearning quest that the best of religion is about to explore the universe and, and answer those fundamental questions. Where do we come from? What are we and where, if any place, are we going? And those fundamental questions inform religious life and inform the lives of children as children. So you get a merger of the natural uh, inquiring mind of the child and the inquiring nature of religion. And that that merger is a beautiful thing to behold when you're with children. You know, what's nice about what you just said to me, too, is I suddenly realized that um, what you discovered in speaking with these children and listening to them is is not only revealing about childhood, but it's it's revealing of an aspect of religion which we probably don't pay as much attention to as we should. We We tend to think of religion in terms of these doctrines um, and these things that we argue about. That's the great tragedy, isn't it? Because after all, if you stop and think about Judaism, the great figures in Judaism are those prophets of Israel, Jeremiah and Isaiah and Amos. They were prophetic figures who asked the deepest kinds of questions and were willing to stand outside the gates of power and privilege in order to keep asking those questions. And then came Jesus of Nazareth, who who was a teacher. You might call him a migrant teacher, uh, Mm -hmm. who walked about ancient Israel, now called Israel, Palestine, whatever, the Middle East, seeking and asking and wondering and reaching out to people and daring to ask questions that others had been taught not to ask or or even forbidden to ask. Uh, And this kind of inquiring Jesus, this soulful Jesus, searching for comrades and let's call them in our vernacular, buddies. They were his buddies. The people whose books we read in the Bible, they were buddies of Jesus of Nazareth. Mm -hmm. And they were willing to link arms with him in this kind of spiritual quest that he found himself, shall we say, impelled toward or driven toward. I don't want to use driven in any Mm -hmm. psychoanalytic way, but just in a human way. And uh, this was... Uh, the the rabbi, the teacher, the exalted figure, a a descendant really of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Amos. It's that prophetic tradition of Judaism which is so profound and important and which the Christian world is at its best the beneficiary right. of. Now, both in Judaism and Christianity, of course, there are rule setters and at times 
they can be all too insistent. Some would say even a bit tyrannical. <laughs> but in any event, the spirit of 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 religion, I think, is what children connect with. Right. The questions, the inquiry, the enormous curiosity about this university, mm-hmm. and the hope that somehow those answers will come about, which is what we do when we kneel in a church and sit and pray in a synagogue or whatever. And and also what you th- I think you're getting at there and what is also um, in this compatibility between children and religion also has something to do with, I mean, there's something mysterious uh, in it as well, something about the mystery of those questions that... that Mystery is such an important part of it, and mystery invites curiosity and inquiry. Uh (laughs) You know, Flannery O'Connor talked about a religious person who was, she was Catholic in background, but she was beyond Catholicism, Uh, she was a deeply spiritual person. And uh, she once was talking about the kind of person who becomes a good novelist, hoping that she would be included in that company, but not daring to assume that that had happened. But once she said, she said beautifully, it's in her letters. Uh, if If the listeners want to get one of her books, it's called The Habit of Being. But in one of those letters, she says, the task of the novelist is to deepen mystery. And then she pauses and she says, with a comma, she says, but mystery is a great embarrassment to the modern mind. And there's our tragedy, that we have to resolve all mystery. We we can't let it be. We can't rejoice in it. We can't celebrate it. We can't affirm it as an aspect of our lives, because after all, mystery is an aspect of our lives. We come out of nowhere, don't we, in the sense that we're a total accident. Our parents met. There's the accident. (laughs) (laughs) And then we come together, and, you know, we're born. I don't, obviously, we come from someplace physiologically, but and then comes the emergence of our being, which is the psychological and spiritual emergence of our being that takes time, experience, education of a certain kind with parents and neighbors and teachers and relatives and from one another, humanly. And this slow emergence of our psychological being and our spiritual being is itself a great mystery, Mm -hmm. not predicted by equations and factoral analysis uh, of a mathematical kind, but just uh, the human, the accidents and incidents of our lives uh, that, that shape us, the people we run into, the dispositions of certain people we meet in a classroom or in, a, in, an, in yet another school that we attend or whatever, or in a neighborhood. And out of this whole range of humanity, we build ourselves. And that's mm-hmm. the mystery of it, our capacity to do it and the various people we meet in so doing. And mystery, you bet. Hmm. It's a, it's, mystery is a great challenge. It's an invitation, and it's a wonderful companion, actually. Well, let me ask you about something that intrigues me in your work and in all, also in other kinds of work that um, around children uh, and around their spiritual lives in particular. Um, that this, this curiosity um, 
and this ability to, con- to connect with the mystery um, and to be wise about it in a way seems to be there in very young children um, and in many kinds of children in many circumstances, both good and bad. Um, and then there comes an age which might be nine or 12 uh, where again, sort of in many kinds of children in many circumstances, they become more like us, like adults. And uh, how do you make? I mean, how do you make sense of that? Um, are children somehow born closer to God? Or I mean, that's one way some people would say it. How, in all the work you've done, how would you describe what's happening? And you mean you ask me whether children unfortunately lose God? Yeah, and it's sort of what is it that hap- is happening early on that yeah. then goes away? Um, well, that's that that's a question not only about spirituality but maybe psychology too, uh-huh. because uh, I think. Uh, I know from my own experience as a parent and now as a grandparent, I watch my, I have two grandsons and I watch them and I see their spontaneity, their curiosity, their, let me even call it their delving spirit. D-E-L-V-I-N-G. They're probing. They want to know. Almost physically, they poke around and explore and touch things. They want to know. They want to understand. They're yearning. This, This is just part of their being. And if they lose that at home and school, this, of course, and in a neighborhood, this can be a tragedy. But I think insofar as that curiosity is allowed to flourish and is encouraged, not encouraged ritualistically or uh, compulsively, but just celebrated and enjoyed by the adult world. This, this, is, this brings them toward religion because I know children, I've taught in a Sunday school, and the children ask me, why, for instance, they'll ask me, why are you teaching? And I say, well, I'm teaching so I can learn from you about God. Well, I don't know anything about God. They'll say, well, what do you know, I say, about God? Well, I know that God created the world. How did he do that? I'll hear other children ask. This isn't me as a teacher in Sunday school. Mm -hmm. Well, he decided he wanted company. Listen to that. I heard from one girl. She said, he decided he wanted company. Well, why did he want company? He just wanted some people around him that he could talk with and learn from, she said. I was stunned. If that isn't the whole existentialist tradition, I don't know what is. (laughs) She had it right there in the palm of her hand. God's search for meaning, which is what some of the existentialists Mm-hmm. philosophically sophisticated writers have told us but she wasn't being she was just being natural intuitive human and and attributing to god her own of course search for for understanding and companionship and a meeting of minds and it, it's wonderful to be in a classroom sponsored by a church or a synagogue and realize that there it is, children and the prophets of Israel and Jesus of Nazareth all and his buddies, if I may use that word again, searching for answers about what are we doing here and how should we spend our time here, what's important. Right. And these children know this out of their humanity. They're trying to figure out what the world is like. 
and they're trying to figure out, among other things, their own parents. In fact, one boy said to me, you know, my parents worry a lot. So I said, oh. He said, well, they're always worrying about everything. And then he brought up the questions of money and, and education. But he said, I think they're just worrying that they should really stay around and be with us. So I said, I thought that was interesting. I said, is there any reason do you think that, that you're worried, that they're worried about that? He said, well, my father lost his brother. And this became a poignant story about frailty and loss. And after my father's brother died, my father became more religious, this boy said to me. And then I realized there he's making that eternal connection mm -hmm. between suffering and loss and vulnerability and faith, or the search for faith, or the search for meaning, especially if you've been hurt or you well, lost now, someone. Well, there, there's that mystery again, too. There I is think. that mystery. There's something that children have that also adults sometimes grasp in the midst of suffering or when they face death. And suffering is both mystery and common human experience, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And religion is there to help us to ponder suffering and its significance to us, and indeed even redemption. Redemption means that out of suffering can come strength, understanding, reflection. And that same boy that I just mentioned, he said, you know, after my father lost his brother, he started thinking a lot about the world, and I thought, well, there's a redemptive response that he's the boy. He isn't using a fancy word like redemptive, but he's getting right down there into the nitty-gritty of religious experience mm -hmm. as a consequence or postlude to human experience equals frailty, suffering, despair, loss, injury, vulnerability, those words which, of course, the Bible's filled with stories yeah. of that, isn't it? And I might add also storytelling. With a storytelling creature, we, the creature of language and narration, we want to tell about what we remember and tell mm -hmm. stories, and that's what the Bible says. Yes, indeed, that's how you understand the word. You tell stories to one another. You know, another. now that's interesting to think about how storytelling is so much at the heart of all of our traditions. I, I can't, at the moment, there may be some, but I can't think of a religious tradition which doesn't have storytelling at its heart. Um, and, I mean, is that perhaps a connection that children have? Because they are natural, because they know how to listen to stories. and They know how to listen. They know how to be told stories. Yeah. They're told stories all the time. And we lose time. that, don't we? That's right. They go to bed and they're told stories. They wake up, they're told additional stories, and the world becomes a series of unfolding stories mm -hmm. that come to them. And, of course, the Bible, reflecting that as an echo of that, in the strongest sense of the word echo, as an echoing presence, the Bible says, here are some stories, stories of meaning, stories of loss, stories that are redemptive in nature because they'll touch you to the bone and to the quick. And we, uh, the Bible, of course, is a storytelling instrument for, of human reflection. Stories of characters, protagonists, antagonists, heroic figures, and the devil, devilish figures, too. Even as we ourselves are a story of struggle and hope, but yes, also we have our downsides. It's not just happy stories. With, it's not all happily ever after. No, we have our downsides yeah. struggling with our upside, <laughs> all of us. 
uh, it's, yeah. a, it's a remarkable thing how we've creatively made use of of our yearnings and hopes in an institutional way, which is called religion. You mean through these traditions that have preserved these stories? Absolutely. But so, so we don't just, as we grow older, um, we don't just stop uh, being tellers and listeners of stories, but in that process we also lose a sense of how stories convey truth. That's right. Which is what our traditions try to preserve for us. We hope so, and if we lose that, then we're in a different kind of jeopardy. I mean, then we're, mm-hmm. then we're becoming... Uh, Lost. That's what it is to be lost, to, to be lost in such a way that you don't have any stories to think about and fall back on, and that you wander around in your own self uh, without any larger frame of reference or purpose or meaning. But we are, I, I wrote a book called The Call of Stories, and boy, did I mean that, because stories call us. They call us, they call to us, and of course that's what religion is. It's stories, in the best sense of the word story, calling to us. Events, the appearance of Jesus, before him the appearance of Moses, and what he did, and how he did it, and the words he used, and his experiences. Let's call him a traveler, a brave, adventuresome traveler. And, and Abraham and his son Isaac, these the early even even uh, not only prophetic Judaism but the Judaism of 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 the of commandments and uh, those early stories of Israel uh, of the heroic figures and the founding of the Judaic tradition. These are. These are larger-than-life figures who took part in in larger-than-life human drama. There's mm-hmm. no question. I mean, if you stop about thinking of what went on between Abraham and Isaac, mm-hmm. uh, which Kierkegaard talk about a Christian echo of Jewish experience, Kierkegaard knew how important that was. That a father could say to a son, you know, if necessary, even the loss of your life. I mean, it, it stuns us. Mm-hmm. But the, I think some early Judaism comes so powerfully to the point of human drama, you know, and possibility. Yes. Uh, it's a remarkably rich and wonderfully telling religion. And this is, of course, what Jesus was part of, too, that same tradition. And I think that, I know from my own children also, I know that it's, it's not just that they are curious, but their imaginations are so alive. I mean, drama is something they are given to naturally. Uh, and they're ready for that, aren't they? Yeah. And they're ready for it, and they're interested in it. And, they, of course, they're interested in a lot of things that a lot of us are not so willing to talk about. I've had children in Sunday school ask me about uh, the Virgin Mary, and they want to know about the mystery of of Jesus's. Uh, uh, appearance among us, and boy, they want to get down to all kinds of details. And I, I try to bring us to a more lyrical and symbolic level, which is, I think, what the Bible intends. And uh, although, who am I to speak about what the Bible intends? But I try to point out to them that what is wonderful about Mary really is the appearance of an important woman in the history of religion. Mm-hmm what she stood for and what she meant and her gift to us, not to mention, of course, in the Old Testament, Ruth, 
And uh, in other words, the, the, the figures in the Bible, men and women, older people, children, they all tell us about the world we're a part of. Mm. And they tell us about ourselves. And children know this. They just know it in their bones. And they'll speak it out. They'll speak it out wonderfully. I worked in Israel, too, when I was doing the spiritual life I, book and the whole effort involved in it. I talked with children in all parts of the world, but I made a point of going to Israel and talking with the children there, Jewish children, Christian children living in Israel, and uh, Arab children living in Israel, a religion I know very little about, you know, the Mohammedan religion. But of course, there are certain convergences that bring together Judaism, Christianity, and the, the Mohammedan world. Tell me about the, the ones of those that you observed um, in well, speaking with children. Well, the convergences have to do with, uh, with God and the mystery. The convergences, by the way, are also calendar-like in nature, that you celebrate the end of the year. That you, that's why those holidays all come together. <laughs> Uh, the Jewish holidays, the Christian, and the uh, Mohammedan at the end of the year. And and it's a way for kids to begin to realize that because I remember in, in one school in Israel, the kids said all these religions, you can figure out what they're like. If It, it depends on the month of the year. <laughs> <laughs> if it's December, they're all celebrating. Right. And, you know, that was pretty smart of mm-hmm. this kid. Mm-hmm. He was pointing out the humanity of us all that connects to calendars, to the end of the year, the beginning of the year. To, to our need for ritual. And for holidays yeah. and times of rest. And on this day you take time off, and on that day you, you go to work. These similarities transcend these so these secular <laughs> distinctions and are an aspect of our humanity, our need for direction and for some regularity and predictability in this life. The, the importance of a holiday, a means of marking time and pondering and reflecting and what, what the religions say to us is this is what we share as human beings. And this, by the way, is what children pick up very quickly. So they, if they're allowed to, they'll run down the field, so to speak, and, uh, and, and pick up on that and say, well, I know what Christmas is about. It means at the end of school, and there's another year coming, and I'll be 10 instead of 9. <laughs> Who can say that? Yeah. Well, maybe some theologian wouldn't like that, but they know. They know. <laughs> they know the origins of this. In our origins, you know. You mean as, the origin of these as rituals? Of as the rituals, holidays. the ceremonies, uh-huh. the holidays, the connection of all of this, by the way, to eating, what food you eat, sitting around a table, of prayer as an aspect of our urgent human need to hope and to settle things with the unpredictability of the fatefulness of life, which is where mystery comes into this, the fatefulness of life, which is around any corner, isn't it, yeah. for all of us? So so the convergence is, is there, and, and, and in so many ways, children, especially young children, there's absolutely nothing sectarian in the way they talk about the holy. But I'm also intrigued in your work... Um, in in how the the differences come out, um, 
And I, and I actually have a question about that. I know, for example, you, you've often had children drawing pictures, uh, and, and often they will draw different kinds of pictures if they come from, for example, a Muslim tradition where they don't believe it's up to them that they should not draw a picture of God. They won't do that, but they will draw pictures. And I'm wondering when... It, it sounds like children have great pride and ownership of the pictures they draw and the things they understand. They sure do. When they look at the pictures of other children, which are different from theirs, do they have a need, like we do as adults with religion, to be right? Or are they able to celebrate their picture as well as the versions of others? Well, it depends on the particular child, but some of them certainly are able to surrender to mystery, by the way, even with picture-making. They'll look at pictures that other kids have drawn and say, well, I couldn't do that, or I couldn't do as well, or I could maybe do better. But they get messages from these pictures, even as they try to signal messages in their own drawings. And that's a mystery in itself, because we're we're the one creature who, after all, who draws pictures, who also uses words. Other creatures don't. And drawing is a way of expression. And for children, it's a natural way. I've had children, by the way, talk about children and drawing. I've asked them if they want to draw a picture of what, how you would represent God. On a, you know, piece. Well, they've turned to me and said, no, you don't. You can't picture God. You, well, you can't. I'll say, repeating what they said to me. You can't do it because God is not in a picture. Well, where is God? Listen to the theology that's getting going here between me and them. But they'll say, well, he's beyond, beyond. And then I've heard, had a kid say when, when the, to another kid, well, where is he beyond? Is he in the sky? Is he <laughs> up there near the stars? Of course, these are the questions we all ask. Then, then I've had girls say... How about she? Have you really? Uh Oh, yes. They're living in the 20th century in America. God is a she. God is a he. Well, God is God, I've had kids say, to settle the argument, which is quite beautiful. God is God. But they try to draw pictures that convey what the Bible conveys of, of frailty, of suffering, of Jesus' hurt, and looking worried or tired, his eyes closed because he needs a good nap, or his face alerted to fear. And uh, they they put in their pictures, boy do they, they put in their pictures the emotions and the stories that they've learned as a result of their religious experience in churches and synagogues. Now, in the Jewish religion, they're told, you don't represent by pictures. God, of course. Uh, but then I've had children say, well, you don't represent them with pictures, but you can, you can think of them. <laughs> They'll say, yes, you can talk about them. And, uh, well, he must look, look like something I heard in a synagogue, <laughs> in a school there. But we can't tell you what he looks like, which is a good way of settling it theologically. You know, in a way, when they settle these things theologically, they're settling it the way the theology had to settle it. I mean, if the rules are and if the experience is, this is almost unfathomable and it's beyond understanding, then you settle it that way finally, even when you're thinking of drawing pictures. But they draw pictures of people of power and influence, evocative pictures that, that, that render the evocative nature of religious experience, the mystery of it all. I'm, I'm, 
Is it? Can, you uh, can we stop for just a second? Yeah, sure. Okay. You know, I'm interested um, when you talk about how children are tuned in to, to the aspects of frailty and suffering and, and hardness in these um, religious stories. Because I think that often when adults offer these stories to children, they try to take out the bad parts. Uh, and they think kids can't handle them, but that's not really what I hear you saying at all. It's not doing justice either to the humanity of all of us or to the shrewdness of children. Thinking uh, about when when we strip out the the hard parts uh, and think we have to protect children from from that. It's not fair to either children or ourselves. We all have a downside. I'll call it D as in down, D as in devil, devilish. We all get impatient and angry and irritated. I mean, it's our humanity. If anyone wants to deny they have that, they're denying an aspect of their humanity. Now, it's true. We try to control ourselves and be responsible human beings and even good human beings. But this is part of our human struggle, to struggle with impulses and yearnings that may lead to trouble for ourselves or for others. And children know this. They know what it is to be reprimanded, to be told no as well as yes. And that no, that big no, is part of what the devil is about. Speaking a little symbolically here, obviously, the devil is the shady, Uh, impulsive side of ourselves. Not that our impulses aren't sometimes quite good, too, but that constant struggle that we go in our we go through in our dreams when we uh, witness this and struggle between good and bad, and uh, in the dreams, in our daily thoughts, and in our behavior. This is an aspect of our humanity, and I think it's foolish to deny this, and it's foolish to try to banish the devil uh, uh, from either the Bible or from ourselves, because we're human creatures capable of misdeeds, but hopefully also capable of living up to higher principles. And I think the Bible knows that. That's why the devil has such a prominent role in it, because religious experience reflects human experience, doesn't it? It is human experience. And um, I, I, I wonder if in your, in your career you've encountered skeptics who, who wonder whether the children you speak with haven't somehow been trained to talk about God because of their envir- through their environment or through their families. Um, but I think that in, in what I've read, um, you also find that children who are living in very secular environments are asking, making these same kinds of observations and asking questions which are essentially spiritual questions. Is that right? Yes, I think it's an aspect of who of their human nature. They may be brought up in a secular world, but they have deep inner sides to them that are non-secular in nature, which have to do with eternal questions of 
what's right and what's wrong. You might call them verity and evil or whatever. But children do come up with that amazingly at times in which they ask even about their own parents. I wonder why my parents struggle so hard to get into this neighborhood. And then they tell, they say to one another they forgot what really matters. Now, when you hear a child saying that they heard their parents say that, they're remembering something. They're remembering moral conflict and struggle. Or they're witnessing it, and they're holding on to it. And in that sense, children, of course, are witnesses, even as the Bible is a book of witness. And this witness that children have naturally within a family, within the developing institutional world that they meet when they're taken to the stores, to the marketplaces, and, of course, start attending school. They're witnesses. They're outsiders who are learning certain ways of being. But they also have a critical side to them, as all outsiders do. And they're asking why, and they're wondering about things. And that is a very important part of childhood and maybe an important part of all of our lives as we try to reason with ourselves about what is called necessary and important and what may not be so desirable or may even be wicked, if I may use a biblical kind of word, wicked. That well, is it's, wrong. It's also a good word for talking to children. I mean, uh, let me, I want to ask you, you've also done a great deal of research and writing, um, not just on the spiritual life of children, but the moral life of children and the political life of children. And, and you've also made important observations about the moral lives of adults. Um, how would you describe, after all of the thinking and work you've done, the relationship between the political and moral and spiritual lives of children? Well, that's a good question. And those are words I use which describe an aspect of human experience, but they, they merge. Uh, we're witnessing right now, talk about witnesses, we're, witness, we're all witnesses to American history, which is unfolding, and we're all witnessing, uh, we're all witnesses to politics, which also has a moral and spiritual side to it. Look at the candidates who are trying to persuade us that they are, in a sense, our moral leaders, or, or could be, or should be. And they're trying to persuade us that they can find a direction for us that we need to have in the White House, in Congress, or whatever. And they are uh, appealing, in that sense, to our political side, but also our moral and spiritual side. They merge. The political life of children has to do with the way they identify themselves as citizens of a country, what it means to be an American, what it means to be born in England and feel that you're English, what it means to live in South Africa and feel that you're South African, which, by the way, means different things depending on your race and your class in, in all of these countries. But uh, politics has to do ultimately not only with place and power and governmental identification and the flag and loyalty to, to a certain country's history, but politics also has to do with morality because it, it has certain principles. Countries enunciate bills of rights, Ten Commandments in the Bible, but also there are commandments in the constitutions and in the various doctrines that are the, the, the countries hand down to people, the rules of the Constitution, of the Bill of Rights, or whatever. 
the amendments to the Constitution, the laws of the land, so to speak. So, so the political life begins to, to, to connect in its own way with the religious and moral life of those people who are living in a certain nation. And what I did is I asked children about what kind of, what is America? What do you think America stands for? Because I want to find out what it means to children to feel American and to speak as they feel an an American should speak. But I also, in listening to this pretty soon here, coming up with being an American as they talk means being a good person versus a bad person Uh and maybe even means living this way rather than that way which in turn connects with their religious and spiritual beliefs certainly with their moral beliefs and you see it's true the books dwell upon different aspects of of our humanity church going say or synagogue attendance on the one hand versus saluting the flag and waving one's uh, patriotic loyalty to a particular nation on the other hand and then there is that moral side of both both to religious experience but also to citizenship the very word citizenship has moral implications it means one is loyal to a certain political code of ethics that a nation has enshrined through Hamilton, through Washington, through Lincoln, through that whole tradition called the Bill of Rights, and on and on it goes. And I, I think this is important that you are, <clears throat> sorry, you're framing the relationship between these things differently than we do, um, um, you know, sort of in the news these days when we make a connection between politics and morality and religion. It's not at all the same you're 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 talking about the way children speak of these things and make these connections at a much more fundamental and actually a much more practical level well i think it is more practical and less fundamental in the sense that I'm not trying to espouse a particular nationality, obviously, or even a particular religion so much as to explore and understand how that is experienced by the particular believers called citizens, called members of religious groups, called uh, self-appointed moralists, or for that matter, naysayers. But there is fundamentally, psychologically, a connection. in the way we adhere to certain principles, beliefs, traditions, whether we do it politically, that is, as voters, spiritually, that is, as church or synagogue members, or morally, that is, as members of a, com- of a family and a community, morally, very important members of a, of a family as well as community, because that's where we first learn how to be moral individuals, how to behave ourselves, behave yourself, say parents, over and over again all throughout the world, meaning try to be good and responsible in accordance with beliefs I have, which I'll show you as we go through each day, namely how you mind your manners at the table, how you dress, how you speak to people, how you get on with people who who come to speak to you, 
whether you're hospitable or and outgoing, whether you're negative and uh, refusing and and skeptical. I mean, these are all words mm-hmm. that connect to the moral life. But if you stop and think about it, they also connect to the political life and the spiritual life, which right. is how welcoming are we going to be in America, say, to other people who have not been here and now want to come and make this their land? And how well will we treat the American member, the various members of the American family. There's where you go from individual families to the larger national family, the family of behavior on streets, neighborhoods, and by the way, and the way we feel about people when we just uh, uh, go about our way and mm-hmm. meet them in stores or read about them in the newspapers and watching television or listening to radio. You know, I suppose it's a characteristic of every age that that um, that we imagine that the problems we have are worse than the problems other people had. Um, I I want I and I and I think that many people might say it's harder these days <clears throat> to raise children who will become moral leaders than maybe it was fifty years ago. Um, from all the work you've done and all your reflection, and your your newest book is also about moral leadership of adults. Um, <clears throat> sorry, what what thoughts do you have um, about that? Well, I'm not sure that it's ever been harder than uh, now, or that it's was that it's harder now than it always was. I think. The problems are fundamental and they persist. Namely, how do we behave with respect to leadership and how do we find the kind of leadership we really want and think the country deserves in the lives of particular individuals who we can vote for or, alas, in the lives of others who never get to be before us because they don't make it in the political system. But if you think about, um, you know, you've... you've, um dealt over the years with children in many different kinds of crisis, including, of course, Ruby Bridges, which is uh, an amazing way to start these studies. Uh, And I think someone might say, you know, now the problem will not just be poverty, it will be compounded by drugs and guns and... um, I think you've also written about children of privilege and some of the un- unique challenges there. And, and in our time in the early 21st century, you know, privilege has certain trappings which seem more complicated by commercialism. Um, you know, so, so is it harder now for children to retain this wisdom or to live into it because of the circumstances of our world? Well, I think it's hard for many children at various times, but I, I, I'm not especially uh, troubled by the current climate here in America or this time because, in a way, let's face it, this is a pretty lucky time in American history. We've got a solid economy. We're not in the midst of a war, nor have we been recently. And this has been a time, talk about privileged ones, <laughs> this is a time of privilege for the nation. Uh, uh, in which we're not losing people in wars and we're not, uh, by and large, having our country suffer uh, severe economic crisis and deprivation that goes with such an economic crisis. So 
against that background, things aren't quite as bad, certainly as they were in the 1930s, for instance, when Hitler threatened the whole Western world, the whole world itself, and beyond Hitler there was the Great Depression that afflicted a number of the Western democratic nations. So there, things have been much worse 50, 60 years ago than they are now. On the other hand, I think, look, every generation of Americans and of people on the planet has to struggle with the possibility of sudden uh, danger, sudden evil, sudden monstrousness of one kind or another. Pick up the daily newspapers and you see that. There are murders. There are terrible things that happen. People are injured and hurt. So there is a possibility of danger that we have to think about. And by the way, bring up our children to know how to deal with and to, to accept as in some way around a corner, possibly for them and for us. That's why children who, after all, know about the world, they listen to the radio, they watch television, they hear their parents talk, and they know that, that, that robberies take place, that violence takes place, that people kill one another or injure one another, that they drive dangerously in their automobiles, that they insult other people, and this is evil Mm -hmm. among us. So you're saying, again, these are these realities which we always have lived with. I am afraid so. I don't want to be gloomy and too pessimistic, but I think... You know, this is what Freud knew. This is why Freud uh, stirred up a lot of criticism, because he acknowledged that there... Well, he acknowledged really what the Bible acknowledges, that there is an evil side to people, and maybe it's inescapable. But he also said, let's try to understand it, and maybe through our rational and decent sides, we can overcome that, or at least hold it in abeyance, or keep it under some kind of control, which is every human being's task, I would say, if I may be a bit of a moralist, which I hope we all are with ourselves and with respect to one another, that we have to keep waging the struggle, whether you want to call it against original sin, against the unconscious and its willful evil side. No matter what language you use, whether it be secular or religious, this is a human struggle, to be somewhat honorable and decent, knowing that it is a struggle to keep that going, Mm. because there are moody unsettling times when we become all too self-serving, if not greedy, if not uh, refusing in our prejudicial manner. And let us hope and pray we win that struggle overall in our lives, which is what the religions tell us. Keep struggling because you'll be judged at the end. (laughs) And that's, they're right. We are judged at the end, whether you want to take it literally and take it judged by the Almighty in a certain mysterious location and manner that's beyond our factual imagination. But nevertheless, we are judged by ourselves and by those we leave when we're dying. Because, you know, they say, well, this is the kind of life he or she lives, and I'm thinking about it now in retrospect and in summation. I want to ask you two more questions. Yeah. Um, uh, the first is that that I'm 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 really struck in in the sort of breadth of your writing that you have not only been observing and influenced by wise children, but also there are some 
wise adult figures uh, who recur in your writings, and Dorothy Day is is the one who comes to mind, but there are others. Um, in particular, when I read what you've written about her, um, you know, I know you, you talk about a quality that she had of of noticing, um, of of noticing and 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 wondering. Um, and taking things and people sort of at face value. Um, and when I read those descriptions, I think those are also the qualities of my children, for example, that I see, that that is a quality of, of childhood, is sort of being able, of, of taking notice and dwelling with things and people just where they are and being able to take delight quite easily. And, um, and so I wonder if, if you make a correlation between adults whom you admire and, let's say, lives of moral leadership and some of these qualities of the children you've studied. Um, oh, very much so. There are, if I may be a little sweeping in a generalization, with all due respect to Dorothy Day and some of the others I've met, uh, there's nothing that they possess, and I'm sure they would admit it, that isn't part of their childhood and of the childhood of all of us, namely searching, wondering, asking, questioning, and maybe sometimes falling flat on one's face. Because Dorothy Day used to talk that way, remembering her own childhood and talking about other people. Uh, now, you know, I would mention here, if I may, that some of the most remarkable people I've met, referring to your observation of the of adults, of parents and whatever, I've met in the course of working with children, but I met people that were connected to those children. There's a book I wrote, it's called The Old Ones of New Mexico, uh, if you'll pardon me mentioning a book I wrote, but it's it's about elderly people in northern New Mexico, and I met them because I was talking with children of Spanish-speaking background. But I found that some of their grandparents, especially these elderly people, were remarkable people, wise and thoughtful. They didn't go to high school even, let alone college, but boy, they were smart and very thoughtful. And I wanted to celebrate that. I wanted to listen to them, and I offer their words to the public as a writer who listens and uses a tape recorder as you're using now. But I, uh, I, want, I wanted to acknowledge myself to them and acknowledge to other people that, uh, that children have companions in grandparents and in parents mm-hmm. and in teachers and adults. And I wonder, do you see... Is there some capacity of people who you've observed to be wise at an older age? Um, have yes. they been able to somehow retain or live into some of these qualities of childhood? Yes, I think you're right. And I think that that's the challenge to all of us, not to forget our childhood and to forget its possibilities. This is, again, in a way, what Freud knew. You repress, he said, a lot of this, and you lose. You may gain because you put it out of your notice and you become apparently law-abiding, but there's a price. You can be law-abiding, but also one hopes and prays spontaneous and your own person and willing to even break some rules that you think ought to be broken, not not in order to be a pain in the neck and a, or, or a lawless person, but in order to capture your own individual particularity and spontaneity. That's what children have, a spontaneous, ongoing direction that is theirs. 
And uh, yes, we say to them, it may be yours, but you have to give up a little bit in order to join a society. But let us hope that they can retain some of that resourcefulness, individuality, spontaneity, and impetuosity even that they have. Let's restrain ourselves. Talk about restraint. Restrain ourselves as we endeavor to work with our children to help them to be a bit more civil sometimes. But let's not banish from them the the positive side of childhood, its yearning interest in the world, almost unquenchable appetite for finding out about things and experiencing them, not in order to be lawless or difficult or self-indulgent, but in order to explore this universe, which is our task. Isn't that what the religions tell us? To explore the world and to realize and fulfill our individual humanity as citizens of this planet, lucky enough to be here, given that chance for a few years of human experience, which is what a life is. Yeah, though, those spiritual questions that you that you describe that children ask are really the questions of what does it mean to be human, aren't they? To be fully All the time human. they ask these questions. Unfortunately, some of us think we ought to stop them from asking them, probably because we're made uncomfortable by the questions. Right. But I, I, I hope we, we're made uncomfortable when they stop asking the questions, because those questions really mean something. Why is this world this way? Why do people say these things to other people? Why can't people, as one girl said to me in a class, it was the fourth grade, she said, why can't people get along better with one another and I heard that question and I thought oh boy she should be president of the United States well and, and if you think about it, if she follows that question yeah. if, if she starts there and spends her life pursuing that question and working out answers to that question that could be right. profound couldn't well it? let's hope she continues to ask it and yeah. let's hope we continue to listen to it and try to answer it for ourselves mm-hmm. I mean, it's a gift to ask a question like that. It's a gift to hear the question posed, and then it's a challenge to try to find the answer for her and for us. Okay. All right, here's my last question. Okay. Um, just, um, I'm wondering uh, what pieces of this, these spiritual insights and wisdom of children um, have most affected and informed your own evolving understanding of how life is to be lived. I mean, can you pull out just a few? Well, I think I'd respond to that question by saying uh, I respond to it as someone who uh, works with children, but also I respond to it as a parent and now a grandparent. I respond to it as a human being who has met children in, in, in many countries, but let's say mostly in America. I'm an American citizen. I was born in America. I love the country. I'm proud to be part of it, as are these children learning to be proud to be part of it. And those questions that they ask, I think have helped me to ask my own questions about how I ought to live and what I ought to do and what matters. And that's the gift that children offer us in homes, but also, I would say, in the work I do. I leave some of the classrooms or homes that I visited in the course of this research and I'm kind of shaking my head a little bit and I sometimes have even stopped the car as I drive away, stop it a, a mile later down the road and I just think about what I've heard from those children and try to say to myself, remember that, 
Remember those questions. Remember their interest. Remember their unflagging determination to find answers and to figure things out. You should be trying to figure things out. Don't just accept the the pieties and the uh, the insistences. Although I understand the need for laws and rules, but try to try to connect yourself to some of that freewheeling adventuresome side of their minds and hearts. And that's a a good part of childhood, as we all know. It's a wonderful part of childhood, and let's hope it lives on, even as we also hope that the children learn to be good, decent members of of a country and of a community. So it's it's a balance. But that balance children remind us of, even as we try to be balanced parents, Mm -hmm. going back and forth and encouraging different aspects of human life in our children as we try to find that balance in ourselves. It's quite a struggle. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for asking me and having me with you, asking me these questions. American Public Media 